Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 464. How is everyone? I'm so excited to share this week's episode with you. I tweeted about it on the day or the day after I recorded it, because there's a moment that comes up quite early on that you'll hear us just us buzzing for. It's a moment of connection between me and the guest that the guest didn't know that we had and then kind of what I won't say too much more, but it's wonderful. This week's guest is Mark Thomas. Mark Thomas is a comedian and an activist, and I've been a fan of him for a long time. Um, he's influenced me in more ways than he knows, but he's about to find out. Yeah, it's a really good chat, and it felt like quite early we were on the same wavelength, and it felt very relaxed and just beautifully free-flowing. You're going to really enjoy it. If this is your first time tuning in, I've had some really good... I mean, this isn't a, a political episode as, as such. We talk about some politics. I should note that this was recorded prior to um, Boris. I mean, all the recent Boris nonsense. I was going to say resigning, but he ain't gone nowhere, is he? So, yeah, keep that in mind. But... If this is your first time tuning in, I recommend the older Carla episodes. I did two with a Carla. The fairly recent episode with L- Loki, that's a really strong one. And just having just a dive into the back catalogue, the fairly recent Stephen Fry one was a really good episode for just talking about anything and everything, as was the Mark Gatiss one. Um, yeah, had loads of good people on. Uh, so check them all out. Jump into the back catalogue and have the time of your lives in there. We're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's my website. That's where all my merch is. I was saying on socials the other day, I've not been pushing the merch much because it feels odd to do so in a a cost-of-living crisis. But obviously that does mean, because of those two things, they're not pushing it and the whole people struggling to, to fucking eat in 2022. It does mean... Sales have taken a big drop. So if you do, if there is any merch that you fancy, go and have a look. But none of it's essential. You don't need any of it. But if you fancy any of it, go and have a little look. We've got loads of good stuff. Also brought to you by patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip. That's where people can drop a dollar or two dollars a month. And it just helps with the, the, the running costs of the podcast. I've been putting this podcast out every Wednesday for I think we're coming on for 10 years. I think we're currently on nine years every Wednesday for coming on a decade. It's madness. So if you can chip in there, that's great. Or head over to twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pip. Yo, it's amazing. You can subscribe there and like you can watch everything I do there for free. But if you subscribe, you get all sorts of perks. And one of those perks is access to my the discord server which is a wicked little kind of private social media just for people who were into my shit and therefore hopefully all on similar wavelengths i'm really enjoying it on discord i didn't know what discord was a couple of months ago i heard people talk about it and i thought i'm old i don't need any of that business but it was really easy to understand as soon as i started using it so so yeah there's a few options for you but i'm going to shut up because what you need to know about is Mark Thomas, his upcoming fringe run and his upcoming tour after that. And we talk about all of it um, and a million other things. So this is episode 464 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Mark Thomas. Right, I'm joined today by Mark T- Thomas. Um, I'm really excited about this because you've had impacts on my l- life that you're completely unaware of, but we'll get into it all. But first things first, how are you? Are you well? I'm all right, actually. Thank you very much for asking. You know, a few bumps and, and grinds after, you know, I'm getting on. I'm, I'm a year off my London bus pass, so yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I'm all right. Um, My dad got his 
a couple of years back and is it's now a constant thing of and again I'm I'm 40 and I'm already feeling all my bumps and grinds and everything that's like oh this is this is just going to keep piling on top of itself isn't it this isn't going to be I fix this problem it's going to be no there's more and more after this no no th- th- you know this is the kind of like look we're finite <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah. and that's it it's grinding on I love that Billy Connolly quote where he said aging isn't for pussies yeah. and I just thought do you know what you're you're kind of right it's grim because it's I'm when he said how are you I just thought I wonder how much I should say because I went to look after my mum during lockdown right right and she's 87 next month mm-hmm. and she's got so many ailments it's unbelievable yeah and so I thought oh, when the lockdown got called I thought I'll go and look after her neither of us knew it would be five months that I was living with her yeah and um up close that degenerative effect of aging yeah is quite you 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 notice it or these tiny little things just whether it's the ease with which someone gets out of a chair whether it is how quickly they're moving their breath or their stoop or whatever how they can hold a knife and fork yeah it's um it's an interesting thing, and it's and, and you know, I think it's quite good that you know, in in some ways, just to be aware that the clock's ticking for all of us. Yeah, it's a good thing because it means right, let's get on and let's do some good stuff. The the thing that always catches me off guard is the moments I see my grandparents in my parents now. If you know what I mean, my grandparents who yeah. are long dead, yeah. and, and yeah. who I remember from when I was a child. Every it's not regular, but every now and then there'll be a moment that I'm like. Oh, you're just like your mum, or you're just like your yeah. dad, or or whomever else. And yeah, I know it's, it's shocking how sometimes you know we see those reflections, and also yeah. it's, it's reflections in us when we go, yeah. "Oh my god, I'm going to get like that." That's me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be that person, mate. Uh, but it can be an absolute highlight as well. Like for uh, as a kid, this is a weird tangent to go off on. But as a kid, I was never a fan of my nose. It's quite straight. It's quite. I don't know. It, it wasn't a nose I was a fan of. And then one day I saw my mum driving along. And I realised, I, I I didn't realise it was my mum driving past at first. I thought, oh, that person looks just like my nan. And then I realised it was my mum, and I realised it was because of, of the nose. As soon as I realised I've got our family nose, I fucking love it. I'm all over it now. I, I, it's like, I, oh, I, now I feel like get part that. of my family now. I feel that's from my nan. Mate, I've got I've got a this is called the mother soul nose, right? yeah, and it comes from my dad's side of it. Yeah, and apparently when I was born, the first thing my dad said was, "Oh, poor little fucker's got my nose." <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, I mean, I'm glad you are well despite ailments and whatnot. But while we're rolling back the years, I do want to talk about your upcoming fringe show and taking it around the country, but. About 20 years ago, I came to see you live and it spurred me on to put on my first ever, uh, to promote my first ever show. And I I hunted through, because I've had the same email address for 20 years, I found the email I sent to the people who ran, who did a fanzine thing called Killer Cola, which was available at your show. And I put on an event to to raise awareness to to boycott Coca-Cola. And then, so that was in around, I said around 20 years ago and then around 18 years ago or maybe 17 or 16 I released my first ever song and it got in the top 40 and it was called Thou Shall Always Kill and it was a list of commandments and two of the commandments were Thou Shall Not Buy Coca-Cola products and Thou Shall Not Buy Nestle products and they came completely from coming to your show where you spoke about what you saw of Coca-Cola in Colombia and Nestle in numerous different countries and things like that so yeah i'm glad to i'm glad to have you on can i say i used to play that song as my pre-show music oh wow that's amazing i love that i loved that song my i remember my mate my mate bobby um he used to be a tour manager for me and he's one that you know what it's like tour managers you when you get a good tour manager you're kind of like Bobby was great. Somebody yeah. said to me, oh, you need a new tour manager. Why don't you go and talk to my mate Bobby? And I got to see him and, and, and I said, what's the first job you ever had? I was supposed to do some interview. I didn't really know how to do it. I said, what's yeah. the first job you ever had, then, Bobby? And he said, doing lights for The Clash. And I was like, okay, you got it. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll take you. And, and but I remember being with Bobby and Bobby said, you got to see this and showed that video that you had yeah. for yeah. that song. And I was like, I'm a fan. Complete, completely influenced, just said that... That was in the like that was the first song we ever wrote, and I recorded it in my bedroom at my mum's house, completely unaware the public could ever hear of it. 
just thinking I live in a small town in Essex. This isn't going to go anywhere. But yeah, one of the big influences, particularly at that point, was was coming to, to see your show and being opened up to more kind of politics. And, but that's the nice thing about art, right? isn't it? Yeah. The nice thing about art, art is you get to see stuff and you suddenly go, oh, my God, where does this go? What, what does it mean? Mm. First show that I ever saw that completely blew me away was I saw my mate's school production of Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bertolt Brecht. Right, yeah. Right? I was 16, sat in the audience, and I left being absolutely amazed that you could go into a theatre thinking one thing and leave thinking another. And that, for me, has been a kind of like, that's been the real big thing, that you can change your mind, that seeing something can get you thinking a different way, it can get you looking at things differently, it can get you to experience empathy, it can get you to experience new ideas. And that's really thrilling. If that isn't at the centre of your art, to express yourself in a way that's original and true to you, then um, there seems little point in it. Yeah, it was a realisation along those lines that gave me kind of a breakthrough in the idea of activism because activism in general can be over overwhelming because changing the world fuck that's that's a big thing to try and do but speaking to, to billy bragg one time him talking about him going and seeing joe strummer talk and that made billy do what he does and then mm. me hearing billy do what he does made me do what i do and you realize that changing the world is a tough thing but changing a world mm. is far more realistic so my world changed in some way when i came to see your show and that's influenced me to do things that might have had other people hear it and it's changed their world in some way so you you realize that thinking on that more i can't solve everything but i can make changes in people who can go on to make changes in people who can go on to make changes in people you know and that's how it all spreads and and how activism can often work at its best, right, rather than just be preaching to the converted, getting up on stage and going, here's all the things I think, aren't I Aren't I wonderful for thinking in a positive way and not really going any further than that? I, I agree with you. There's also a point where you can actually just express outrage. You can yeah. express <laughs> common outrage. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, and I'm thinking in particular of our present Prime Minister. Yeah. Just to express our disbelief and outrage time and time again, to stay, to not get used to it, to not move on, to yeah. say, no, no, this is abnormal, that you're anywhere near a lever of power. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think that, that actually to express that outrage, to rediscover that outrage yeah. is really important. Do you remember how you felt when you learnt that he was Prime Minister? Do you remember how you felt, you yeah. know, when you suddenly thought, oh, my God, he's going to win, he's going to do it? And then he he gets in, you know, when he prorogues Parliament, when he um, suddenly forces through his stupid, you know, his Brexit, whether you're pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit, you have to go, look, the bloke doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, yeah. he's there going with the union, and then he's putting a border up the Irish Sea and saying, we're going to have no infrastructure will have no impact and of course it does you know actually just to express that fresh outrage to say we should not get used to this yeah is a valid thing completely as as we record this we're only a couple of days off from when he he survived the vote of confidence do you think that's a good thing I, I think it's a good thing because of exactly what you say of remembering the outrage. I think if he got ousted now, there would be enough time for someone else to come in and by the time there's actual elections, people to have forgotten a bit of the outrage, whereas he's got a big, stupid face that's <laughs> that's easy to remember. So I think if he's in power, come close to the next elections, I think there's more chance of people remembering the cacophony of outrages that have been his 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 period in charge. You could be right. I mean, I think I love your. He has got a big stupid face. He, he, <laughs> he always looks like a post-coital Gurnian chimp. Yeah, you know, he's got that smug. Yeah, you know, and he. If you look at it in terms of like, will people vote against the Tories? You have to kind of go, okay, what do, what do we want? What do we what do we want to see? What do we want to see happen? And there are a few things that you could introduce that would actually bring about proper change. One of them is to get the Labour Party to endorse proportional representation. Mm-hmm. Right? If you've got PR, we've changed everything. If you get if you get people actually and, and I genuinely think we need to have votes for sixteen year olds. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to say, look, you know, if you can join the army and go away and get shot, you can have a vote. Mm. That seems to me entirely fair. 
The Tories hate that idea because they know that the younger you are, the more likely you are to support the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that, that's actually a truism which is borne out in the demographic of uh, Brexit supporters and Boris Johnson supporters. I mean, the, the great thing is about Boris Johnson supporters is they are a demographic that are dying off quicker than being revitalised. Yeah. So there's a, a, there's, there's a strange thing about what, what do you want to see? Because if we're just going to get Keir Starmer, anything's better than Boris Johnson, just about anything's better than Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Grant Chaps would be better than Boris Johnson. Because, you know, at least he's got no charisma. Do you know what I mean? He, he might be cut from the same cloth. They might be enablers. But if Johnson went now, they would have... The amazing thing about him is he has to have people around him who... He's like an emperor who has to surround himself with courtiers. Mm. So he can't surround himself with, with people who are clever. Yeah. And that's the last thing that he wants. Uh, he has to surround people who are loyalists mm-hmm. and who are subservient to him. You know, whether it is, you know, Nadine Doris or whether it is Grant Chaps, you know, or who, or Dominic Raab. They are all subservient to him. They're not that bright. They're not that clever. Yeah. So in doing that, what he's done is he's cleared the stables, if you like, of anyone who's got vague intellect to challenging. Yeah, yeah. Does it mean that we that, that we all remember it? Well, I always think politics is the art of remembering over forgetting. Yeah. You know, that was the great quote. I think it was Milan Kundera came up with, politics is the art of remembering over forgetting. Yeah, I love that. And it's true to remember, you know, when everyone's going, well, I don't suppose, you know, if you're anti-monarchist, I don't suppose you'll be taking the weekend off then, will you? It's like, well, mate, you know, trade unionists gave us the weekend. Mm. If you're so anti-the left... How come you haven't taken weeks off, weekends off? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And it's like, we have to remember this stuff. You know, we didn't get a Sunday, uh, we didn't get a Saturday afternoon. The idea of a half-day Saturday came in about the 1850s, 1860s, somewhere around there, 1870s. You started to get this idea of the weekend to be created, and it's a trade union thing. I was talking to a guy, he's a lovely guy, he's an artist. Sorry, I do babble. Um, he's, He's great bloke. And what he did, his name's Harry Malkin, and uh, he's, he was a miner, and he, he um, he's become an artist, and he still loves lives up in Yorkshire, and he's a really great bloke. And I went round his house, and he's got a picture of uh, a mine worker, a painting, leaning against a sort of mound of slack underground with a cup and a snap tin for his lunch. Yeah. And uh, I said, oh, I like that. And he was great. He just went, it's my homage to reclining nude. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought was just great. I love it. But what he said was, he said, people don't know that my workers didn't get a lunch break until 1974. Wow. No lunch break until 1974. And that was part of the reason for the strike back in the 70s. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? How how do you feel about where we are in politics at the moment? Because it feels like we're going away from that quote, the art of remembering over f- forgetting. It feels like politicians now know that if they can ride out a scandal for a couple of weeks, more often than not, there'll be another scandal along or another news story at least, and people w- will forget. I think that's what worries me when elections come along, is that I hope someone is making a really, and as stupid and meme or modern as it is, I hope someone is making, keeping a really good record of all the the travesties of this, of this particular Tory government so that when that comes around, we can be reminded in, in bullet points, in brief, in, in succinct ways, here's everything they did wrong. You well, know. you're right. I mean, they've done so many things wrong that you forget. And, so, yeah. and it's like this shock of, it's like almost dementia where you wake up and go, oh my God, they did that again. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. like you remember yeah. something again. Yeah. There, there are two points that you sort of write. One is about how we remember and what we remember. And I think what's really interesting is this is the culture war. Mm. This is why people, this is why Johnson loves the culture war. You know, you have people going round that statue of Winston Churchill. Do you remember when they had the statue defenders, yeah. you know, and they were singing No Surrender to the IRA? Well, actually, in 1921, Michael Collins, who was the military commander of the IRA, came to London to meet the Secretary of State for Colonies to negotiate the creation of Ireland. Right. right? That's a, to, not the creation of it, but the, the empire would leave mm-hmm. Ireland and yeah. keep hold of that northern bit. 
right? And um, in effect, that person surrendered to the IRA. That person was Winston Churchill, <laughs> right? The bloke that they all run around now going, no surrender to the IRA. Surrendered to the IRA. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is utterly insane. When you look at something like, uh, you know, all the stuff about free yeah. uh, school meals and all yeah. that and, and, and food during holidays, food parcels during holidays, Marcus Rashford was the person who embarrassed the Tories into that U-turn, all right? But you still had a whole load of Tories saying, well, you can't give them food parcels because they'll swap them for drugs. Mm-hmm. Natalie Elphick said, if you give them food parcels, they'll end up in brothels. Let's put aside the absolute insanity of those statements for a minute, yeah, right? that's not easy, but let's try. Let's, let's just put it aside. <laughs> During the famines in India under British colonial rule, the British Empire had services of work so you could go and work right and you, you know ditch building or, or or road building and you would get paid in food right so all the people who are you know not all the people but a number of people who are up against you know proper starvation and death mm. destitution could go and work and you'd get a bowl of, of food at the end of it and in parliament people are asked you know there are lots of commissions on this only one person objected to people being paid in food. Only one person said, shouldn't they be paid in money? They're doing a job of work. Pay them the money. Everyone else basically went down the line that said, well, these poor Indians, if you give them money, they'll just spend it on cigarettes rather than feed their children. This line of argument has been going on for centuries. This demonisation of the poor and the working class is not something that's new. This is their modus operandi. Yeah. There was, a, you know, back in the, the, the workhouse days, here's a question for you, because I'm a big fan of, of British Music Hall. Mm-hmm. All right. You know the, the song My Old Dutch? Yeah. We've been together now for 40 years and it don't seem a day too much. Now there ain't a lady living in the land who had swap for me, dear old Dutch. No, there ain't a lady living in the land as I'd swap for me dear old Dutch. Beautiful song. Very sentimental, right? Yeah. At the beginning of it, the performer would do a mime of an old man walking on stage and waving goodbye. And the person he was waving goodbye to was his wife because they were going into the workhouse. And when you went in the workhouse, you were separated. You were taken apart. They took you apart, and what they would do is husbands and wives would be kept apart, and they would be able to see each other maybe once every two weeks, maybe once a month for a half hour, possibly an hour chaperoned visit. So he's saying goodbye to someone he spent every day with. Yeah. Right? And so when you look at this song, which is, you know, I've got a gal, a regular out-and-outer, she's a dear old pal, and I'll tell you all about her, which we always think is saccharine. Yeah. It's about someone having their heart broken through the harshness of the workhouse. Yeah. This is stuff they have done. This is how they operate. It was illegal at one point to give people in the workhouse roast beef on Christmas Day. Even if it was donated and given, they couldn't get it because if they were given roast beef, then they would, people would, more people would come to the workhouse because they don't want to work. They're lazy. So they just want something for nothing. You know, it's like what we need to do is reduce the the benefits. We need to make this country unpopular for migrants to come to. Well, job done. But, you know, it's kind of like this idea that anyone in need is because of their own fault and their graspers has gone on for centuries. This is how the ruling class operate. Yeah. And, again, it's there's two things that jump out on the ludicrous that that's there. One thing... um, Rutger Bregman had a really good book a couple of years ago called Utopia for Realists, and he spoke in there of the benefits of um, a a universal basic income. And the examples he gave was tests done of someone going into a job interview when they're starving versus when they're not. Mm. And it was was ridiculous. There was numerous examples of this kind of thing that, no, allowing someone the basics isn't going to make them less motivated or make them go, oh, I just won't do anything. It allows us more upward mobility or whatever you want to call that book. I love that book. I love that book. There's a section in it where they talk about decision-making and poverty. And I'm trying to remember that there's um, a crop in India where literally you get paid half your year's income in a week. Right, wow. And then the next half, you're, you're... And so actually, when you've just been paid and you're comfortable and you're safe, 
Yeah. And a load of people did a load of cognitive tests about people's cognitive abilities just after they'd been paid and then sort of just before they got paid when everything was on the breadline. And the tests were absolutely fantastic because you could see the differences between people's mm. decision-making abilities in those two states. Poverty is something that cripples people, right? Yeah. Yet there is this idea that actually, the, the, and, and the Tories love this, you know, well, you know, if we, and, and so did the Labour Party, so did the Labour Party. Well, you know, the thing that we need to do is to motivate them. And the thing that we motivate them with is, is taking away the carrot. And yes. just, you know, if we give them things, they'll just get used to it. You don't say that about the rich. Nobody says, God, blimey, look at them rich. They get all them tax cuts. They just sit on their asses all day, which is what they do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the reality of it. The, the, the other thing that came to mind instantly was... I've known my fair share of drug dealers over the years and none of them take payment in food. None of the ones I've met are, t- are taking payment in food anyway. So, again, I, 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 do you know the what? ludicrousness it's, of it. I, I, absolutely. <laughs> I, I used to do a gag about it, about how the drug dealers work in the international currency of pasta bake. Yeah, you know, yeah it's exactly. The, the so, stupidity so, of it. And also the idea that kids are going to, you know, families are going to get this food parcel and then go, I can feed the kids or I can go and get me hold in a brothel. Yeah. Insanity. And yet they're given, they're decision makers, these people. Yeah. Do you know what it's I mean? Ridiculous. It's, it's amazing how easily led the public can be, though, that statements like this will go about and that will be taken as, as fact. My brother has said for, for years that the most damaging phrase and concept in the Western world, at least, is common sense because it allows people to get away with so much. Oh, it's common sense, of course. If you give homeless people money, they're going to spend it on on drugs and alcohol. It's common. It's common sense. Have you done any tests into that? Because they have done tests into that, and that's not the case. If if you if again in in Rutger Bregman's book, I think I've had him on the podcast twice. I think it was in his first book. He gave example of when they took, I think it was four or five homeless people in a particular area of London and gave them room and board for a certain amount of time, and it saved that council money because they were having to spend so much in clearing up the kind of the mess left by homelessness and addiction. And it was cheaper to give them somewhere warm to sleep and food to eat. And it it might have been 12 actually, but it was something like 11 out of the 12 all ended up working by the end of it and, and, and doing positive things rather than spending it on booze and drugs and I mean, it is. I, I, I think you're very lucky to have him on the program twice. I think yeah. that's lovely. You're yeah. Lucky old thing. Um, but I think there's also a thing which is, you know, the, there's a hypocrisy. But people go, oh, they just spend it on booze and drugs. Unlike us. Yeah. Unlike ninety percent of the rest of the population, who will go and wisely invest in church organs and antiques. And again, I was going to say, it's only in the last year now, I think that. The HSBC, who've done a lot of bad things in the past, so I'm in no means just championing them, but have opened up a, a setup for homeless people to get banks with them. Because previously, you couldn't get a bank if you don't have a home address, a, a, a residence, or or whatever else. So they're not putting it in their savings because they can't put it in their savings. No, like, what do you expect? It's it's naturally if if you're living on in that situation. A bit of self-medicating might be a fucking great choice, to be completely actually, honest. Yeah, it might actually be, in the long run, a better health decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- there's a, an interesting thing that comes out of this, though, and I did one of the things, like, we're looking, th- there's a report published recently about the fact that most people have got, I think it's over 50% or just over, just under or just over 50% of people have not got £500 worth of savings. Mm. So, so half the population haven't got 500 quid. Yeah, yeah. Right? And that's a relatively small amount of money in the big scheme of things. Yeah. There's there's a fantastic... An, an actual exclusion from financial services are a really interesting thing, which is why actually, you know, after the financial crisis, the idea of setting up a people's bank with a post office was a really exciting idea because you could start to include people. There's all these policies for how... You can spend your money, how you can invest your money if you've got it. There's not one policy for working class people to save money. Mm. Not one. Yeah. You know, and there are the Tories talking about thrift. Yeah. You know, everyone's supposed to be thrifty but them. Yeah. But yeah. when it comes down to it, the idea that you can save and keep a bit and grow and grow. Look, 
My mate runs, or she used to run, a thing called Hastings Furniture Service, which does the most unsexy thing of getting furniture for poor people, right? Yeah. It's an amazing thing. They collect all your furniture, anything you don't want, they'll, they'll come and collect it. They put it in the warehouse. They have loads of craftspeople there, who, and they run MVQs for people so you can get electronics, you can, do all, you can train there, you can do cabinet yeah. making and all that kind of stuff. And then they put it on sale, and people with the MVQs then go on to further training and all of that. It's, it's really cool. Uh, then you've got you put it on sale there are two prices one for waged one for unwaged how cool is that right then they open up all these sort of social um these industries you know industries and and businesses that have got a sort of social dimension to them like they have the shop mobility scoot a lot with them they've got a sort of ethical uh soap manufacturers and stuff like that and so all these things start spinning out of it they got the art school in because they took over a petrol station (laughs) and on the garage has got massive great uh, windows so you could ju- the light yeah. is incredible Amazing. and one of the things that's really exciting was uh, and she's brilliant she's a really great thinker and when the, what happened was one of the things that um cameron did was they said right you're going to ring fence councils there's no ring fencing of, of of certain funds and we're going to give you the hardship fund so all the money that if you if you were in hardship you could come along if you were low waged if you're signing on whatever you would have to if something happens like your fridge goes or your bed goes you know people are up against debt if their bed gets broken if their fridge goes if the washing machine breaks where do they go to where do they go to because they can't go and borrow money off of the banks they can't go and borrow it off of of most building societies you know you go to the council now in charge of this sum of money the emergency fund that's not ring fenced and they've got enough cut so they're going to plunder it yeah. Right. Two things happened, which I think are really interesting. One was my mate. She went along to the council in Hastings and said, look, you've got problems here. Tell us what the most, the, the things that people need. Right? What do most people come for? And it's baby bellings, uh, washing machines, fridge, mattresses, beds. Right. And she said, you give us half the fund, half the money you get for it. We'll go and buy that stuff in bulk. We can store it in our warehouses. Amazing, right? yeah. We can buy it in bulk. We can negotiate a bulk discount. So you pay less. Everyone gets their stuff. Everyone gets taken care of. It'll all look the same. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you yeah. get taken care of. And these ways of imaginatively solving community problems are yeah. really exciting. They're thrilling because we have to find these problems. We have to find these solutions. There's another thing, which is the Fair Finance Initiative, whereby you can get money from banks to actually run. It's like a mutual. But what you do is you make loans to people who don't normally get loans. Right, so in Scotland, they got one in Glasgow, which is great. Yeah. And I spoke to them. They're really cool. And what they do is they lend people. And it's, again, those people who are up against the breadline. Bang! You suddenly lose your fridge or your freezer, your washing machine. Do you know what I mean? And you, you've lost your ability to put your kid in clear. Look, my sister's a, a teacher. She's a, a She works as a pastoral care teacher, all right? And I did a benefit to pay for a washing machine for a school because so many kids are coming to school with dirty clothes, And that doesn't sound huge, but it's stigmatising. Poverty absolutely isolates and harms people. Do you know what I mean? So these things are really vital. Particularly at at that age as well. It it, it gets into everyone's head, into everyone's... That will be what that kid is known for or who that kid is. We all know that from our youth. There will be the kid that either we were or there was the kid that was pointed out or looked down upon exactly what's fascinating is that this group of fair finance you can come you've got a choice at this stage yeah you can't go to payday lenders because they won't give you anything because you haven't got payday yeah right so these are people who drop below the payday so you can go to this place the fair finance lot and they're great you will pay back the money they are really tight on it it's not a gift yeah and once you've agreed what it is and how long you're going to take to pay it off right one of the things that they say is, can you afford to save a little bit? Even if it's 50p a week, yeah. can you afford to save a little bit? And just begin to build up a bit of a cushion, do you know, so it makes the next time easier. Yeah. And two things that have happened out of this, which is they've stopped. The, the, when I saw the figures, this was a few years ago. It was about, I think it was about eight years ago. The figures showed that they helped mainly single mums. Yeah. And the figures also show that they stopped over 500 homes 
being repossessed. Wow. And that's the kind of creative... I mean, look, this is, these are solutions to deal with poverty. Mm-hmm. And it seems to... There's part of me that goes, why do we have to deal with it? Shouldn't we be abolishing it? Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't help that person who's at the bottom of the pile. No, th- these things can come hand in hand. Yeah. We can be yeah, yeah, fighting yeah. both fights at the same time. And it's, it's, it's making people aware at times of mindsets that are alien to their own. I was, I was, I was having a walk with my mum recently. We've been doing a lot more of that since the pandemic. And she was saying about how she's worked in in libraries her whole life, is retired now and does a few different things trying to help out the council and stuff. And And she was saying how a lot of younger people these days don't seem to prioritize saving. And I had to kind of explain that it's, all depends on what you were taught or what privilege you had or what you had growing up as such. Like my parents, by no means wealthy, but they were able to move out of South London to come to Essex because it was cheaper and therefore have that idea of getting a mortgage, of saving, of all these kind of things. I've got people in my life who grew up their whole life in in rented um, accommodation, struggling to, to, to pay the rent each month, hoping to have enough for food. They're not going to have in their mind, oh, but I need to save a bit. It's like, it, yeah. it's like we didn't have that. We managed to just be outside of that. So you can't kind of say, oh, it's a generational thing. Oh, kids don't save these days. It's like, no, it depends what they've experienced in their lives. If you're scrambling to put food on the table, you're not prioritising savings. Well, certainly I agree with you. You know, when you're scrambling to put food on the table, which so many people are, I mean, this idea that food banks are something that Tories open with and delight is fucking disgusting, yeah. frankly. But there's also the fact that if you're grand, you know, I I went to college and I got a, I, I got a grant. You know, I mm-hmm. I got a grant when I when uh, I used to work. My dad, who was a self-employed builder, he, he was great. He helped me because I used to work with him for five days a week, and at the weekends I used to go and perform gigs when I was first starting. Yeah. So I would go and do that, and. Um, he was great, my dad. I didn't realise it at the time. He, he literally goes, what's he just... Because I came into work. I used to drink. I don't drink anymore, but I used to drink. Yeah. And I, I came into work. We'd, we'd done this gig at, at the Square in Harlow. And the bloke who used to run it used to love taking the comics back, giving them all wine, getting everyone chatting in his, room, in his uh, living room. And then he'd drive them back into London. Lovely bloke. Yeah. Lovely bloke. And he'd drive you all from Harlow to South London. Do you know what I mean? And you'd get in at about sort of three, four o'clock in the morning, and then you'd be up at eight, seven, whatever, to get on. And I remember once going on the scaffold and being like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? <laughs> and my dad, my dad was great. He just went, right, you're fuck all used to me on Monday and you're fuck all used to me on Friday because Friday you're always thinking about your gigs. Why don't you do three days a week? And so I did three days a week working with my dad on the building site. Yeah. And then I had this sort of extended weekend to be able to obsess about, you know, performing and working and organising gigs. And yeah. and actually he was fantastically helpful. I don't think he, he – I don't know to what extent he, he you know, consciously made that decision go, I'll help him out, yeah. uh, rather than going, he's fucking useless on yeah. these days. But he, he was brilliant at that. Now, I don't see many people in that situation. Yeah. There used to be the, what was the name of that thing where you could get the youth, that scheme where you could sign on? If you were signing on, was it the youth opportunities? You could sign on and it meant you could claim dole and still earn, you could you could work right. for a year. Do you remember that one? I don't know if no, you remember, remember it. That, no, well, no. it's a great thing. It, it meant, Billy Bragg did it. Basically, yeah. it meant you could sign on, you got your wage, you got your, your signing on, and you could go and try and develop your own music career loads of performers did yeah. you signed on and you had a year doing your apprenticeship yeah yeah and it that. really helped people and in a way thatcher did that accidentally do you know <laughs> she yeah. accidentally yeah. helped yeah. people but if you look at young people now who are coming up they've got no houses they've got no chance of getting a mortgage they've got no chance of of escaping the debt if they went yeah. to college you know 50 percent of people going to college they're just coming into life with debt you know, this is incredible. There's a housing shortage. You know, the rent is going through the roof. You know, yeah. we're facing a recession, cost of living crisis, and then, you you know, it's kind of like you're scolding them if they haven't got a post office savings account. Yeah, I I dropped out of uni because I couldn't 
handle the idea of of getting into into debt. I was just after the after grants had been scrapped, and I couldn't get comfortable with it. I did my first year, and I was like, no, I'm, I don't know that I'll ever be able to get out of this. If you know what I mean? Because again, I didn't come from any wealth or anything. It wasn't that well. It'll be fine. It wasn't that mm. that class of people. It's like, oh, we all do it, and then we're in high paid jobs. I was doing photography at uni. Like anything in the arts, I'm like, I might not ever make a penny out of this and come out the other end 20 grand in debt or whatever. And and that was a, cri- a crippling th- thought to me. And it meant I just went out and did stuff instead. So it it worked in the end, I guess. But, yeah, it's it's horribly but, restrictive, uh, uh, right? It, it is, it's hugely restrictive. I think especially when you look at – if you use – look, there are two ways – there's lots of ways of looking at it, but two of the ways of looking at it are this – the creative industries in this country creates more GVA than the City of London, mm. right? We produce more money. We create more economic activity than the City of London. Yeah. Man. That's the creative industries. Yet yeah. we're shutting down art schools. You're shutting down drama courses. You're shutting down this, shutting down that. We create more. That's the first one. So why are you doing this? You know, this is... This is the future, you know. It's, this is what is. We can't all go off and be either mini cabbers or mm. or bankers. You know, that's not the the. You know, this is is really what's sort of creating an economy. There's another argument that goes alongside this, though. And I remember seeing there's the guy who ran Channel Four, Jeremy Isaacs, mm-hmm. espoused it, and he espoused it so beautifully. He said. He went, there, there was a, a course being opened. There was a, a kind of open day, access day at the Royal Opera House. And it was for kids from state schools to go in yeah. and to look at ballet. and Because, you know, they have the Royal Ballet there and all of that. Well, I did a show. The reason I know they got the Royal Ballet there is partly because of, of Jeremy Isaacs, but also because of the fact that I did a show. I got commissioned to do a show by the Royal Opera House. Wow. Which was fucking nuts, yeah. right? Because they let me rehearse there. So we would go, they had a canteen upstairs. So we were going past these, we'd go past the, all the ballet dancers in training from the Russian ballet. We, yeah. So they'd all be in those rooms with the mirrors and all of that. Yeah, they had these yeah, glass yeah. things. And you'd be able to walk past every one of us, right? Every one of us who were working on the show, we'd just be tucking our stomachs in as we walked past. Because <laughs> automatically, because yeah. these people were like this, yeah. you know. But the thing was, that they had this workshop for kids, and Jeremy Isaacs remembers this child running around, and they were looking at the fairy queen. And one of the young women, they were reenacting it as a story. And one of the young women, had, he said, ran with this piece of cloth and were totally in the moment, totally yeah. in the moment of being this fairy queen. There was a freedom, there was a lack of self awareness. There was this oneness with who they were and what they wanted to do, this ex- this moment of liberation and expression. And he yeah. said, and for that alone, we should fund the arts. For people to experience that freedom, yeah, we should fund the arts. It's that moment, those lovely moments, and I'm sure you felt them. Yeah, I witnessed it with my little kids, with, with my children when they were younger. When we were dancing, we used to have loads of. There's there's um, a great song called "Hey Sailor," which the Detroit Cobras used to cover. Right, and it's a great song. And I used to I used to do the drums. I used to put my daughter on my knee, hold the arms, and do amazing, yeah, and all of that. And there's this wonderful moment where. She was just running and said, this music makes me feel so mad. And I, I, I just adore those moments. Yeah. yeah. This music makes me feel so mad. That she couldn't express it in any other way. That the music overwhelmed her, that it, was, that it sprung up into this sort of thing inside her and that it connected with her in this such a prim- primeval way was, yeah. was so exciting. Yeah. And you think, well, yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's that's all you need. That's the only excuse you need to fund this stuff. Everyone should feel like that. There's a show that comes to the UK. It's often every other year. Slava Snow Show. It comes. Mm. It comes at Christmas, and I try and go any time I can. Partly for the joy that I feel watching it, and partly for the big ending of it. Just looking around the room, and you go in there. I love it. I love like before it starts. I'm looking around and I'm seeing like some like late teens, early 20s, clearly on a date. I'm seeing some, like, grandparents 
with their grandchildren. I'm seeing people of all ages. There's people playing it cool. There's people who are just just here for the arts. In that end moment, everyone in that room is a small child. Everyone in that room is you, is your daughter listening to that music in that yeah. moment, and it fills me with so much joy. And it, you, can't, you don't get you don't get that feeling anywhere else. That's exactly joy. That's exactly it. Those moments of pure joy. Yeah. There's a funny. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we could you know you could talk about what what art does and what it means, but. There's a brilliant thing. I was working with a mate of mine who's a playwright, and he's an ex-drug user. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to tell his story because his story is brilliant. All I'm going to say is he wrote an amazing play called The Political History of Crack and Smack. Right. It's a brilliant play. If you get a chance to see it, yeah, go see it. So uh, we're writing a thing together, which hopefully will come at some point, you know, whenever. And while I was in Manchester, he runs a group with a group of recovering users. Mm-hmm. And um, he's remarkable. I went. To, they do. They make short films. Because what yeah. do you do with recovering users? Yeah. Well, you can make a short film. Why not? Give people skills. Give people creativity. Give them something they can be proud of. Give some way in which they can learn things and develop things. It doesn't have to be in particular about anything, really. It just it's a way of getting something which is good out of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like the the the, the it, to some extent the the kind of like mental benefit of this is just to produce something that's good. Yeah. You know, that's that's the end of it. Yeah. But I went up there and we did he said, Would you do some comedy workshops with them? Because they're used to telling their stories. Yeah. They tell them in meetings all the time. Yeah. And their sponsors, they tell them in their spot. You know, everyone tells their story and it's always you know, there's the trauma, there's the this, there's a that, there's making the inventory of people you've caused harm to, all of that process. Very rarely do people get a chance to tell their stories and have fun. Mm-hmm. So we did this workshop and it was just the best day. It was just the best day. They were as funny as hell. They were absolutely brilliant. And they produced this work that was astounding. And actually, you think when you look at art and the arts and all of the, whether it is that or whether it's the, you know, kids running around at the opera house, all of it can have worth. All of it is something which is important for us. Why do we have to be a cog? Why do we have to be a cog in, in the machine? Why do we just have to, you know, get up, go to work, do your thing, get your lunch break, finish it, get home, telly, you know, boom, and that's, you know, why does it have to be like that? Why yeah. Why can't we have more moments of joy? Yeah. I was talking to a vicar about this. Right. Sorry about this. I'm really on no, one now. I do no, go ahead. There you go. I'm loving <laughs> it. I'm too, loving it. I was talking to a vicar about the idea of St. Mondays. Do you know about St. Mondays? No, I don't think so. I probably do and I've forgotten. I had a Catholic upbringing, but, you know. <gasps> You'll love it. it You'll love it. Yeah. St. Mondays. St. Mondays is where a community, it's kind of pre-industrial era that moved into the industrial era. When a community had had a bit of a celebration on a Sunday and really didn't want to go to work on a Monday, they called it a Saints Day. Right. And they called it St. Mondays and everyone took Monday off. Or they continued partying and wound it down in the evening or whatever. Right? I talked to a historian about this. He said, I've studied this as examples of St. Tuesdays, right? So people have gone on for the and there's one example he found of St. Wednesday. And you think, wow, that's gotta have been a party. Now this idea that you got your community can just go, we're gonna take time off, we're gonna be together, we're gonna have a community event yeah. is absolutely outstanding. I love that. I love, I love that. I, I, I love that your dad subconsciously invented St. Mondays for, for you when you were working on the building site. That's basically he what he's did. done there. He's done he that. He kind of did. He kind of did. But that idea that your community would just go, we're going to have time together. We're going to have time for us. Yeah, yeah. I talked I to a vicar it. who's um, Anglo-Catholic and he said to me, I said, what do you think of the idea of St. Mondays? And he said, absolutely. He said, it's a Christian idea. He yeah. said, you know, we're, we're here to enjoy ourselves. When Jesus turned the water into wine, it was the best wine. Yeah. It wasn't the second best. It wasn't an okay (laughs) wine. It was the best. Yeah. You know, so actually I think there is very much that, that, 
that sense that we're here to have these moments of, of, of communication, of love, of kinship, of community. And if these things sound kind of like weird and ephemeral and arty-farty to people, think what you felt like during lockdown when you were devoid of this, when you yeah. couldn't reach out and have your community around you, when you could only see people on screens. The fact is, is that we were damaged during lockdown as people because we couldn't be with each other. Yeah, yeah, completely. Well, I mean... Check out this ultra professional link here. But speaking of those workshops with people who've been through all that, if there's anywhere that's known in recent years for turning tragic stories into hilarious hour long sh- shows, it's the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, and, and you're returning for the first time in four years. And I mean, as someone who, as we've seen, likes to weave socio political stuff into their comedy and into their shows. It's been a fairly productive four years from that respect. There's been a lot going on that you can probably talk about. What's made you want to return? Is it needing that communion again, that that gathering of people? Yeah, why are you returning and what's the new show about? It's called Black and White, right? Yeah, it's called Black and White. Do you know, why am I doing it? Because I love it. Yeah. Because I feel happiest on stage, because I feel that I can be me on stage, that I feel... That is the place that I am truest to who I am. That is the place where I can improvise and muck about. It's a place where I can tell stories and they don't have to be, it doesn't have to be bang, 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 punchline, punchline, punchline. You can have yeah. stories, you can have emotional engagement. I remember seeing Steve Wright. Do you know Steve Wright? You know, yeah, the American yeah, comic yeah, yeah. who's on, um, oh, what is the, the, the Reservoir Dogs? You know, he's the yeah. voice of the radio yeah. in Reservoir Dogs. And he's a great comic. He's he's written my favourite joke of all time where he says, I'm not going to try and do his voice, but he says, I was out driving and I got pulled over by a a police officer and he said, do you know you were doing 60 miles an hour and this is a 30 mile an hour zone? And I said to him, I was only going to be out for half an hour. <laughs> he's a good, he's brilliant. Perfect. He is brilliant. It's just economy of words in all of his stuff. But, he, yeah. he has one gag which is my favourite, where he just stands up and says, "Some people are afraid of heights. I'm afraid of widths." <laughs> he's amazing. And that's it. It's just brilliant. It's, and the thing about him, though, amazing performer, fantastic gagsmith. I mean, just the economy of it. Yeah. You know, when he does that, he, it was him who originally said, I put instant coffee in the microwave, nearly went back in time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's he's genius at these gags. Yeah. But after 45 minutes, you just go, I could really do with learning a little bit about you. Yeah, yeah. I could really deal with just having a little bit of emotion. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If you look at all the, for me, you look at Les Dawson. Les Dawson was just ripe with emotion and yeah. pathos and, you know, he was all about fun. And, you know, he was a genius, but he had, yeah. you know, you saw him in his richness, the language he used, that mm-hmm. language, that, that sort of, um, it was a luscious language that he used, a love of words that was found in an autodidact. You know what I mean? He yeah. would just grasp them. I remember, I wonder if I've got the book. Now, I might have got it. Let, I'm just having a look over here uh, because I've got one of his books which which would illustrate the point. Here you go, here you go, here you go. Love it. Right. Let's put these on. This, by the way, was written by my mate Louis and it's fantastic. Right. Right. The it's, Trials it's the, and Triumphs of Les Dawson, yeah. It's, yeah, it's by, it's by Louis Barth, who's just brilliant. This is a clown too many. This is Les Dawson's own book, right? Yeah. This is him. This is his beautiful. Listen, I would like to think that this book is not merely the story of one man's journey through the wayward and vicissitudinous corridor of life, but that it's also the history of an epoch in which turbulent change was the most dominant and challenging factor. Within the short period that is the backcloth to my existence, I have known gaslit hovels, dirt and poverty, cobbled streets and lumbering trams, bleak women in clogs and shawls, filling in silence towards the brooding mills. I have witnessed the emerging vista of urban materialism, science, supersonic travel, the dawn of the atom, all goaded in maturity by a major war and lesser strifes that would one day balk the spiritual progress of mankind. It's Les Dawson, man. I love it. 
I, I, I love it. The listeners can't see, but I'm beaming here. I'm beaming you as know, I'm I mean, listening to that. It's just absolutely... This is a man that loves words and thinks. Do you know what yeah, I mean? He's, yeah, yeah. He's just... I, I, I adore it. And I love the fact that he that he plays with words. Yeah. There's a wealth allows. of words rather than an economy of words. It's the oh, exact absolutely. opposite. It's letting you in on, on so much more in that way. Yeah. And it is. It is. And it's beautiful because what he does is he allows you into emotions. He allows you into an emotional landscape, mm. which I think is really beautiful. There's another person who used to do that, which is David Irvine. David Irvine, who was the um, paramilitary leader of the Ulster Volunteer Force, I think it was, right. or Ulster Freedom Fighters. He was in part responsible with Jerry Adams for the peace process. He led the loyalist gunmen to the peace table. Um, mm-hmm. He was in the H block. Uh, do you want me to tell you the story? It, it lasts about five minutes, this story. Go ahead, go to- ahead. Yeah, yeah, I've got right. time. If you've got was, time, I've got time. Yeah, yeah. I was doing a gig in Belfast, and I was being driven to the gig, and somebody just said to me, who's impressed you politically? And I said, David Irvine, because he got the loyalist gunmen to the peace table and then actually formed the Progressive Unionist Party and denounced sectarianism. Do you remember there was that case in in, uh, the north where Catholic schoolgirls were being jeered at and spat at and all of this on their way to school? He was the only unionist leader to appear and tell them that they were shameful behaviour and that this was a dark day for union. That's quite a thing. Yeah, huge. Do you know what I mean? And what he did was... So I I said I liked him. Anyway, the guy driving me just said, would you like to meet him? I said, yeah, that'd be great. Didn't think anything of it. Get to the gig, doing a sound check, sorting out the lights. He walks in, holding the phone up, going, Mark, it's David Irvine on the phone for you. (laughs) And I've picked up the phone and just gone, hello? And this voice just goes, Mark Thomas, you've just bounced into my life. What exactly is it you want? (laughs) And at that moment, you part of me wants to just go to live. But part of, and I just, I didn't know what to say. So I just said, would you like to meet for tea? And he said, tomorrow. And he gave the name of this hotel. And I go to the hotel and I I do have this habit of when I'm sort of like nervous, I, I try not to say the worst thing, but inevitably do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, I, I, I remember once doing a recording years and years ago on Saturday Zoo with Jonathan Ross. It was yeah, it's live show and Paul Weller was on the show and we'd both done a gig there and he just came up to me after and said, really good gig. And I just said, oh, thanks, mate. I've, um, I'm just learning how to play guitar. And it was like, why did I say, what did I say that for? <laughs> what did it. I say that for? And he goes, oh, yeah. And I said, the first tune I've learned is that sentiment. He goes, right. And I forget the chord structure, but I said, just A to D. And he said, no, it's G to F. So I I just have these, you know, I have this ability to put my foot in my mouth. So I was going, don't, don't say the wrong thing. I've walked into this hotel, David Irvine, right? The man who was sent to the H-Bock when he was caught with a car bomb by the British Army trying to block Catholics, stands up, holds out his hand and said, Mark Thomas, I recognise you from your photo. And I said, David Irvine, you're smaller than you look in the mural. (laughs) Which is the worst thing ever to say. It's just the worst thing to say. It's just, I feel embarrassed just thinking, I mean, it's funny, but I think, think, oh my God, what did I say that for? What an opener. But he was a lovely bloke. He was a really fascinating bloke. And he talked about the need for human rights to, for, to people to, to, to understand human rights, the need for people to... Why did, we, why did I start telling you this story? I can't remember how we got here. It was off, it was off of Les. Oh, off yeah, yeah, Les, yeah. He was, he was an amazing bloke. That's right. It was, the, the thing about him was he would talk about how when he was in the H block, he realised that the Republicans were all getting degrees and MAs and were in the library, and the loyalists were all in the gym. Mm-hmm. And he, he'd say, you know, when, when the H blocks got shut down, they donated the library. The library is incredible. Yeah. Right? And he said, not to be outdone, the unionists donated their weightlifting books. <laughs> right? And, and so he's kind of, he, he's, he's quite a funny guy. He's an interesting guy. And he is somebody who, who said, you know, instead of relying on tribalism, what people have got to realise is they've got human rights. And if they realise they've got human rights, they might realise other people have got them too. Mm. Which is a lovely... And he was he he believed firmly in education. He was like, yeah. In the north of Ireland, the percentage of working class unionists at university four percent, wow. and that is disgusting. Yeah, that's 
disgusting yeah. that it's that low. And if it had been any other community, there would have been righteous outrage, and, and rightly so. You know, that's terrible. Yeah. And so he fought for education. And the great thing about him, and the reason why I mentioned him, was I said to a mate of mine, oh, I met, I met David Irvine. He said, there's a man who will never use one word when there are 10 available. And it's, it is the joy of the autodidact, yeah. the man who's discovered each word and revels in its usage. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, um, I mean, I'm going to start to wrap things up as we're over the hour mark now. But um, I want to ask, so obviously, as we said, you're going going back to the fringe of oh, yeah. a new show, but after that, you're going to be touring it. How important is touring to you? Because... I think particularly when you have work that often has a social or political message in it, it feels more important to be getting out to people's towns, out to their town halls, to to their theatres, wherever you can get. Because it feels like that's how you reach people more. That's how you reach the people that you need to reach as such. The people who don't need reaching are going to be finding the material and so on and so forth. But it feels like the people that you'll find in comedy clubs, even if it's a headline show... They're the people that you need to be, you know, talking to. What I lo- well, I love, I genuinely love touring because I've done it for nearly, thir- I've done it for thirty-seven years. Yeah. So what I love about it is everywhere, you know. If I go up to Leeds, I've got mates of mine who I see, you know, yeah. and I've known them for years. And there's certain places at Leeds Market that I'll go, you know, that I'll go over to, and um, they go, "All right, you're back." You know, yeah, <laughs> I love yeah. That. I love the fact that I'll go to the Red Shed Labour Club, which is in Wakefield, which is yeah. this little wooden building. It's a socialist club. Or that I'll go to Hebden Bridge to the to the trades, which is this beautiful little place, you know. I love the fact you go to places up in Glasgow and it's a proper, it's great. It's just fabulous. Yeah. You know, I love touring because there's my mates there. There's I get to see all my mates all over the country. Yeah. I get to go and see and do beautiful things. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, that's that's how I spend my time. I, I get bored easy. So I want to tour. I want to have fun. I want to create this. The, what you want to do is create a community in the club. That's what we do. Yeah. Right? When people go, oh, comedy can never change anything. Well, actually it does because the very unit that we work in is getting people from not laughing to laughing. That's a, that's a change. Yeah. How do you right? find the balance in that, in, 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 in weaving in politics or messages and f- f- Fucking having a laugh, having having Just a night. When we used to tour on my albums, there'd be political stuff, there'd be stuff about self harm, suicide, all sorts of things, and I'd be adamant not to just play the party songs live. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because like it needs to be a. For me, it was important yeah. to have a mixture of that stuff, and I think that came from again uh, seeing people like yourself and numerous other people in different areas of the arts where I would have a enjoyable, entertaining night out, but I'd be going home and I'd be thinking about a few things on the last train home or last bus home from the show. I think there's something... I mean, there's what you want to do is play. All of this is about play. It's about creating a... For me, you want to get up there. I, I love heckling. Yeah. I genuinely like it. Yeah. Uh, because, and it doesn't matter. If someone does a good heckle and gets one over you, give them a round of applause. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 Say yeah. well done. You know, yeah. that's the thing of it. You don't want it, 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 to... It's a group effort that we're all there. Yeah. I love the fact that that's a group effort. I love the fact that we're all this, this dynamic that's a one-off event. Every gig's a one-off. You, know, you will never get the same thing. And I adore that. I absolutely love it. Um, so agree. for me... I, I, I used to have... Sorry to keep interjecting. But no, I used to have pleasing. people ask all the time, like... Like, how is it when you're doing 30 dates on the tour playing all the same songs? And my answer was always that. It's the same songs, but it's a different crowd every night. That's yeah. what makes it different and exciting. I, I never got bored of it because every night it's it's a different crowd. It's a different thing and it's a different exchange between the two of you. It's not just here I am doing doing my thing and then going home. But I, I always interpret kind of – I always think that performing is a little bit jazz. Yeah. You know, you've got you've got a standard and then you go around it. Yeah, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That you just that you play, that you and it, and, and and I love the I was doing a gig at Latitude and I was doing a thing about uh national anthems. 
And I was saying, who's got favourite national? Because that one's crap, you know. And I said, who's got favourite one? And somebody stood up in front of the whole audience and sung the Welsh national anthem. It was the most beautiful thing. I love it. And righteously got a massive cheer at the end of it. Love Do you know it. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, at another yeah. gig, the Usher... Right, this is in Corby, sung me the chorus from the Polish national anthem. Amazing. You know I mean? So I love all of that. Yeah. I love that, that play, that interaction, that mucking about. Yeah. And if people do something, then credit them. Yeah. This isn't just a one-way process. Yeah. If it is, then, you know, buy the video. Yeah. That's how old I am. Buy the video or, indeed, the shadow play of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I completely agree. And it's giving that respect to the audience. Like, m- my name might be on the ticket, but yours is on the receipt stub. And that's, and that's, yeah, that's, and that's a- the important bit. That was always my kind of of outlook on it. Yeah, exactly. That's a beautiful way of looking at it. Well, I'm going to wrap things up there, Mark. It's been an absolute joy. I knew it would be. I appreciate you taking the time, and I look forward to catching this next uh, this next run at some point, hopefully. Well, listen, I, I look forward to seeing you, man. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Mark Thomas. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, man. You heard my excitement in in telling Mark about how he'd influenced my early career and Thou Shall Always Kill. And then the absolute shock to hear that he used to play Thou Shall Always Kill pre-show to his audiences as they were arriving and that. How cool is that? How cool is that? I was loving it, obviously. I was absolutely buzzing, as you will have heard. Go and check Mark out on his tour or at the Fringe. I look forward to catching his show. And I'll be back next week, of course, with more chat and nonsense. As said, if this is your first time tuning in, dive into the back catalogue. There's some cracking episodes in there. I recommend them highly. One episode got me nominated for a humanitarian award. Like, seriously, if you search Distraction Pieces Safe Housing for Women, it was an episode I did, and um, that and the Refugee Special, again, search either of those combinations. Yeah, they got me nominated for weird things. It's mad, isn't it? It's It's a silly little podcast I've been doing on my own. For I mean, on my own, as in I record them on my own. I've got Buddy Peace, the best producer in the land. I've got Jared hooking things up online. I've got John Harris on the socials. But, yeah, it's mad how these things grow and are impacted. Anyway, I'll stop talking now. I'll be back next week. Until then, please do your very best to stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.